Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Today, Farah, we're going to talk about people who think they know better than we do what we should read or see or hear or learn. The American Library Association has a list of the most banned or challenged books of the 20th century. You may be surprised, but books such as The Great Gatsby or The Grapes of Wrath or even To Kill a Mockingbird are on that list. These people are called censors. Many of them are self-appointed. Many are government sanctioned to protect national security. Some are formed within the entertainment industry, for example, the people who created today's motion picture ratings, and before them, the Hayes Code that limited language and nudity in the movies for decades, carried over into early television, requiring Rob and Laura Petrie, as well as Lucy and Desi, to sleep in separate beds. Farrah, why don't you introduce our guest who will explore this topic with us today? I'm excited to introduce our guest today, who is Professor Sandra Davidson. She teaches at the University of Missouri-Columbia, and I had the fortune of being one of her students in media law as a J-schooler there. She's also taught classes on censorship and even written a book on censorship, so she's a great guest for today's topic. Professor Davidson, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Let's start at the beginning. How do you define censorship? What is it? In the pure sense, censorship is when the government shuts you down. The government says, thou shalt not speak, write, broadcast, whatever it is. And then if you violate it, you can be fined or sometimes even imprisoned. What we're talking about, again, is the government. Censorship can be used broadly. You know, self-censorship, sometimes I wish people would use that a little bit more. (laughs) And you can have private companies doing their own form of censorship. But we'll be talking about the government shutting us down. There are times when government, it seems to me, probably has a right to censor. I think of uh, the people who sent letters home during World War II or, or news accounts from various places where we saw the bylines being somewhere in the Pacific, things like that. It seems to me those are fairly permissible, are they not? Yes, they are. And I think actually the United States has hit on a pretty good balance. May we wax philosophical for just a moment? There are three different models for free speech or lack thereof. First would be if you just have no limits, no limits and then no damages for whatever you say. Now, an anarchist would love that. That really wasn't something that we would consider very seriously. But a model that the U.S. Supreme Court really did consider seriously was that we would have no limits, but if what you said caused damage, you'd pick it up. Like, you know, for libel, a guy by the name of William Blackstone was very influential with the Supreme Court. He was British, and he wrote big commentaries in the late 1700s, and that was his model. So the Supreme Court, when it first considered, will we allow censorship, looked at him very hard and said, Blackstone, you're almost right. There are some times when we really do need censorship. And Bob, you hit on it. When it comes to times of war, when it comes to national security, the Supreme Court in 1931 said we could have 
a limit on the information about troop movements. We can have limits when it comes to trying to incite violent overthrow of the government. No, that would not be good. When it comes to obstruction of military recruitment, again, we can have limits. And then there's the fourth biggie, and that's obscenity. Now, later on, 1976, the Supreme Court added another area, and that's to protect fair trials. Sometimes we need gag orders. At least that's what the Supreme Court says. So national security, obscenity, fair trials. Otherwise, we're pretty much going to be a society where we determine what we say. Professor Davidson, as you just described, it sounds like the law when it comes to censorship has evolved along with the country's history. Are you seeing new efforts to continue to change the law in this area where it applies to censorship? Certainly. Let's talk about obscenity, and then let's talk about a second area which affects the broadcasters, and that's indecency law. Now, when it comes to obscenity, we have, uh, I think, a long and interesting history of that. Way back in 1842, we were taxing pictures and photographs that were coming over from Europe, calling them pornographic. Then we had the mail restricted back in the Civil War. Um, Soldiers were reading books such as Fanny Hill, and that kind of material was considered obscene. So we had, I think it's interesting, this law that now is on the book still. It's kind of uh, modified, but every obscene, lewd, lascivious, indecent, filthy, or vile article, matter, thing, device, or substance is non-mailable. So you get this list, which really doesn't tell you that much, does it? So we had to have the courts step in. What is obscene? That's the big question. How about doing just a little bit of history on that? Would that be okay? That'd be great. Let's talk about the Hicklin test. This was an early one way back in 1868. And I want you to listen to what this test said. Whether the tendency of the material is to corrupt minds that are open to such immoral influences. So basically, obscenity law was going to restrict anything that could affect children or abnormal adults. And then we added this partly obscene doctrine. If any part of a work would have that undue influence, that could be eliminated. But let's bounce to 1933. Have either of you read James Joyce's Ulysses? I tried to once. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in that same category. Stream of consciousness just is not my thing. But a judge in New York heard the case of whether we should ban Ulysses. I think maybe it was kind of a trumped-up deal because if you got your book banned, then it would sell more. But Judge Woolsey looked at this, and he said, that's not obscene, that's art. And he said, you look at the whole work, and you wait, how does it affect your average people? Well, it wasn't until 1957 that the Supreme Court finally weighed in on this. I love what Justice 
Brennan had to say. I think you'll agree with it. Sex, a great and mysterious force in human life, has indisputably been a subject of absorbing interest to mankind throughout the ages. It is one of the vital problems of human interest and public concern. End quote. And thank you, Justice Brennan. But he also made clear that sex was the area where we could restrict obscenity. Now, Fanny Hill, it's amazing to me, that was being litigated back during the Civil War, 1966. Would you believe Fanny Hill is in front of the Supreme Court again? Have either of you read it? Okay, I read that one. I got through it. I read Lady Chatterley. Ah, D.H. Lawrence. That sounds good. Well, the Fanny Hill test, the Supreme Court said that to violate it, the material had to be utterly without redeeming social value. Utterly without redeeming social value, 1966. So I was out in Connecticut about that time. So I went to this seedy little theater and I watched this porn movie. A lot of activity, no costumes, no lyrics, no, you know, a plot or anything. Okay, frenetic activity at the end. Everybody else is leaving, but I'm finally interested. A man comes out wearing an ill-fitting three-piece suit, and he explains the sociological significance of the material that we had seen. So there it was, that escape hatch, which allowed the pornographers to get their material out there to the public. I'm going to repeat that. The Fanny Hill test had this escape valve the pornographers quickly latched onto, so they would add a little bit of redeeming social value. But now the Supreme Court was really struggling. What is obscene? You know, times had changed, and Bob, you had mentioned it. It had been that even married couples were sleeping in their separate beds and all, but now we'd had hair on Broadway Things were changing, and the Supreme Court just didn't know what to do. 1967, the question was, what about these girly magazines? Bob, I won't ask if you've ever read Hustler or anything like that, but that was the situation. (laughs) I have a 50-year collection of Playboys, if you'd like. Oh, interesting. (laughs) You need that for your research? (laughs) I have done research on, yes, all sorts of things like that. I always do say it's for research purposes. Thank you. So the Supreme Court absolutely could not agree on whether to allow things like Hustler and Playboy and all, threw up its hands and half a dozen cases or maybe even more, just said, we can't decide. In fact, the Supreme Court said that obscenity had divided it more than any other area of constitutional litigation. Now, I don't know if that's still the case, if maybe abortion has been uh, more divisive, but what a problem. I think the big problem was the court was asking the wrong question. The court was asking, what is obscenity? And just couldn't decide, you know, like Justice Potter Stewart, I know it when I see it, but he (laughs) admitted that he couldn't define it. But having the justices admit 
that they couldn't come to grips with the definition of obscenity was really that was the change that made a difference. The court then started in asking a question that's more appropriate for constitutional litigation, and that's this. What state interest justifies restraint? You know, who are we trying to protect? And the court landed on two groups, and I'm sure you can guess what those are. Who do we want to protect most? The children. The children. And also, we want to protect adults who just can't protect themselves, okay? The people who don't want to have to hear this. How do we make some barricades for them? So children and unwilling adults. So it's 1973. And finally, we get the obscenity law that is the good law now. And it's a three-parter. First, you ask, is the material patently offensive? Now, to determine that, you ask, what would the average person think? Applying contemporary community standards. Please note, there is no national standard, and the Supreme Court made that clear. Second, does it appeal to the prurient interest? This prurient interest, is it sexy, lustful? And third, we got the slaps test. Whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Now, the court said if it's patently offensive or if it appeals to purient interest will be decided by community standards. But later on, the court said when it comes to the slaps test, the serious value, we're going to use a reasonable person standard. I think the court was quite correct that in some communities, the average person might not be reasonable when it came to obscenity. So that's where we are. There was another case in 2005. Well, it started in 2005 in California. The issue was violent video games. What do we do about those? Now, the Supreme Court said First Amendment is broad enough to protect video games, you know, not just plays and movies and books. And by the way, the court said any future technology that has expressive content will also fall under the First Amendment. Well, the Supreme Court, though, looked at California's attempt to restrict violent video games to, well, restricting it primarily to children, people under 18. And the court said, we are not going to say that violence is obscene. No, it has to involve sex or sometimes excretory functions. But the court really looked at the problem also. If we try to say that violence is obscene, how do you define violence? What about the Three Stooges? I was watching them on MeTV just a few nights ago. Pretty violent stuff. The Roadrunner. How about some of the hunting programs, you know, trying to promote safe hunting, but still arguably seeing a deer shot is violent. That's pretty much the, the lay of the land right now when it comes to obscenity. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? 
legalese. Let's be clear about what censorship is. For those of you who resisted your parents' efforts to keep you from reading bad stuff, that was not censorship. That was parenting. Censorship is when the government forbids you from saying, reading, or watching something. Censorship is when the government tries to act like our parents. To rein in the government as censor, we have the First Amendment, specifically freedom of press, freedom of speech. We have been in constant turmoil in interpreting the First Amendment as to whether the government can limit material that is obscene or whether the government can restrict publication of information that may be harmful or embarrassing. My favorite satirist from years ago, Tom Lehrer, celebrated our free speech tradition in his classic recording in 1965 called Smut. Before Lehrer sings his song, which is preserved on YouTube, he introduces the topic of obscenity with the observation that, unfortunately, civil liberties types who are fighting this issue have to fight it owing to the nature of the laws as a matter of freedom of speech and stifling of free expression and so on. But we know what's really involved. Dirty books are fun. But Lehrer concedes, you can't get up in court and say that because, as he says, it's simply a matter of freedom of pleasure, a right which is not guaranteed by the Constitution, unfortunately. Well, 1965, for all its rambunctiousness, seems like such a simple time compared with today. And one era's satire is another era's reality. Our society has waged a war on obscenity and pornography for decades. And let's face it, smut seems to be winning, at least in the court of public opinion as measured by the demand for salacious stuff. The U.S. Supreme Court says the question of obscenity must be judged by community standards. A person driving across our state in recent years on Interstate 70 west of Columbia might be paying attention to billboards advertising adult books and other items of previously unmentionable pleasure. The motorist might reasonably wonder what community standards means. The government, which once banned books with bad words and TV shows with wardrobe malfunctions, seems relatively powerless to protect us from ageless urges. On television streaming services these days, comedians regularly do stand-up routines that go well beyond the routines that free speech pioneer Lenny Bruce went to jail for 60 years ago. Lenny Bruce's comedic heir, George Carlin, was famous for his list of seven words you could not say on television. And I won't say them here, though on a podcast I do have a right to do so. You do not have to watch too many hours of streaming TV to hear all seven of Carlin's words. Some older listeners may remember that the city of St. Louis passed an ordinance 50 years ago or so to keep the musical hair from being performed in the city. The musical was very popular, aided in part by the controversy over censoring it. Morality crusades are the best promoters of what they are trying to stop. In current times, books that school boards are publicly banning often end up with skyrocketing sales. To quote Tom Lehrer's song, Smut, All books can be indecent books, though recent books are bolder. For filth, I'm glad to say, is in the mind of the beholder. The Supreme Court's legal standard, as sung by Mr. Lehrer, is that to be obscene, the material must be utterly without redeeming social importance. I am not sure what that means, objectively speaking, but it sounds okay. On the subject of censorship, let's shift to a more boring topic. Stuff the government does not want you to know. Like, you know, government secrets. 
Governments, state and local, love to keep secrets. The trouble often is that the more people who know a secret, the less likely it is to be kept secret. Older listeners may recall that six decades ago, the Pentagon authorized the creation of an extensive history and analysis of the Vietnam War. A significant number of Pentagon officials knew about the report, which filled 48 boxes. That's just one copy. Daniel Ellsberg, a Pentagon official, leaked a portion of the report to the New York Times and a few other newspapers, including the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The government sued the newspapers, asking the federal courts to issue orders prohibiting publication of the report. The First Amendment does not forbid government secrets. The First Amendment is only involved when the government tries to bar publication of its secrets after they are leaked. The government's legal attempt to suppress the Pentagon Papers quickly got to the docket of the Supreme Court of the United States, which, with lightning speed, issued its famous decision that barred the government's attempt at forbidding their publication. The government's attempt to keep records secret was not a complete failure. A great deal of the report, some 7,000 pages, remained secret, classified, and unleaked for 40 years. This constituted about one-third of the Pentagon Papers, which were released in their entirety on the 40th anniversary of the 1971 leak. Government secrecy, of course, entices journalists to expose those secrets in a timely fashion when they're hot news. Such exposure often finds wide approval among the public, some of whom celebrate the awarding of Pulitzer Prizes to those intrepid journalists who make our government workings more transparent than our public officials want them to be. Thus, governments often fail at suppressing disclosure of their secrets, and they often fail at keeping obscenity and pornography from corrupting our morals. Why do they fail? In part, it's that pesky First Amendment. Our founding fathers who gave us the First Amendment knew well that governments will overreach, and when they do, the people lose freedoms that our revolutionary forebears fought for. And when that happens, some will fear that we are in a shift from democracy toward autocracy. We are, of course, a freedom-loving people. The constant struggle, legally and otherwise, is how much freedom. When it comes to the First Amendment, are we absolutists, libertarians who believe the government has no business in restricting freedom of the press or freedom of speech? Or are we trusting of the government's pure motives when it stifles free speech? Most of us, I suspect, are somewhere in between. Not always a comfortable place these days of intense polarization. There's a lot on TV these days, words and pictures, that is protected by the First Amendment. In my view, the First Amendment is something we should be willing to fight and die to protect. On the other hand, there's free speech stuff in the various media that I would not care to die for. I have occasionally said to someone with whom I disagreed, I respect your right to say that, but I'm not prepared to die defending your right to say it. So, my fellow citizens, man the battle stations. The fight for liberty goes on within ourselves. This is Mike Wolf, fighting for freedom. But how much freedom? Legal ease. So there is no real national blanket standard, is there? Because we, we, see, we see the community standard issue come about in libraries and in school districts especially. And so we're seeing questions about what's appropriate for children to read or see in schools. And that, that varies from district to district to state to state. Absolutely. And when you start in talking about the internet, then it really gets to be a problem. And we may see a change of the law in this area. We've got a couple of Supreme Court justices who have been talking about this. 
when you have the Internet, will our current law mean that the most conservative districts will be able to control? I'll give you an example of a case. It involves the Thomases. They were advertising what they said was the nastiest site on earth. And they were doing that from their homes in California. A guy down in Memphis, Tennessee, paid his 99 bucks to get their service. Some people think that he was actually working with the prosecutor. And he said, well, I expected nasty, but not as nasty as what I got. So now the prosecutor gets involved. And the question, what is the community? The Thomases and their attorney wanted to say that there was a national internet community. Memphis said, no, we're using our standards. Let's talk about two live crew. Have either of you heard As Nasty As You Want to Be? Their album, Farrah has. Actually, I had a student who gave me a, a CD of that. Well, their Nasty album was very popular, but it came under attack down in Florida. So you have a federal judge who is trying to figure out what is the community. Well, nasty uh, as you want to be. Should it be under a music standard? The court said, no, we'll just do three communities. So it's really kind of haphazard in a way. The, the judge has to decide you know, what constitutes the community. So that is a problem. And again, we may see a change if the court decides to say for the internet, we have to have a national community standard. I can't imagine how a court is going to figure that out. No. But that's why we pay the big money. <laughs> You've talked about how censorship typically applies to, can apply to books, film, news, photography, video games. You know, the question came up there. Are there any surprising formats that you think that the average citizen doesn't think of when they hear the phrase censorship or any unique cases that something that was censored that would probably be surprising to the person? You know, I, I, I think most people probably, like myself, think of the name George Carlin, the comedian who challenged and is part of our history and challenging censorship when it comes I believe to radio was first where that was broadcast. But are there are there any of those cases that really piqued your interest that you think would fascinate the average listener? Yes. Well, I'm glad you mentioned George Carlin. I am a fan. That brings up one of the big questions, and that's indecency. Let's talk about obscenity versus indecency because there is a big divide when it comes to how far the government goes in censoring, whether you're talking about print media or over-the-air broadcast media. Obscenity applies across the board. Indecency applies only to broadcasters. Now, I'll just add that there have been attempts to apply indecency to cable not yet. Twice, Congress tried to apply indecency to the internet, and the Supreme Court said no. But when you talk about indecency, you only talk about one leg of the obscenity test, 
and that's, is it patently offensive? Well, George Carlin started the ball rolling. The case is the Pacifica versus FCC. Here's what happened. A guy was in the car with his kid listening to the radio, and on comes George Carlin's seven nasty words you're never supposed to say over you know, TV or the radio, and Carlin drops them. Just little warning, boom, there go those seven words. Well, the father was upset, and ultimately his case ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court. And the question there was whether the FCC could restrict broadcasters from airing indecency, or could the FCC fine the broadcasters? Well, broadcasters hopes that they would have as much First Amendment freedom as, say, a newspaper publisher or a book publisher got dashed. The Supreme Court said, yes, indecency can be policed over the airwaves. And a lot of the reasoning was scarcity. You know, we can have more control over the broadcast airwaves because there are few of them. But also, again, wanting to protect children and the unwilling adults. And Bob, you may have met Al Sykes. He was, he was a Missouri man who, uh, who was the head of the FCC for several years. Yes. I knew, I knew Al very well. Oh, that's, that's good. Well, I got to see him over at law school, and it was the early 1990s. And, of course, the big question was, but what about indecency? And here's what Al said, basically. He said, I don't want to see censorship, but... Kids need protection. He said, not every household is a happy days household or you know, a Cosby family. He probably wouldn't use the Cosby family example today. But he said, we need to protect these children. He realized that sometimes parents weren't. So here's the way the situation was evolving. 1978 through to 1987. Basically, if a broadcaster didn't use any of those seven naughty words, it was okay. But 1987 is a watershed year. And uh, we, we do get people in the FCC who are concerned about kids, and they're concerned about double entendre. So we have a period there where I, I think some of the cases that came down were really kind of silly. For instance, in 1989, a Detroit station was fined for doing its parody of Walk Like an Egyptian. You've heard that song? It was Walk with an Erection. Okay, so a $2,000 fine for that one. But then we had people like Howard Stern, and he's the really the king of fines. But I just want to fast forward to 2004. Did any of you watch the Super Bowl and the Janet Jackson wardrobe malfunction? Yes. Justin Timberlake 
tugged uh, a part of her blouse off and ex- exposed her breast. So, was that indecent? The FCC decided that it was. And here was the the problem. We're in kind of, you know, 2003, 2004. We're in an era where the FCC really can't decide what's indecent. Bono, in 2003, had said effing brilliant when he accepted a Golden Globe Awards. And at first, the FCC said, well, that's okay. It's a fleeting expletive. And the court uh, the courts were going along with all this. Well, the leading expletive thing was, uh, you know, it's not bad enough. You have to dwell on it. We'll just let that go. Well, and then just a few months later, we get the Janet Jackson fiasco, and the FCC decides, oops, we're going to change our minds. Leading expletives are not okay. We're going to say the very first blow that makes it unacceptable. So now we have the FCC trying to change its mind, and we have broadcasters and other folks who are really confused. And quite frankly, there was a time period there where I don't think anybody could have predicted what the FCC would do on indecency. For example, Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen that movie? Yes. A marvelous, yes. a yes. marvelous movie that ABC wanted to air to honor veterans. But Steven Spielberg said, you may air my movie, but you may not edit it. And I think he was really kind of worried because it does drop the F-bomb. But if you're trying to make a realistic movie, if the guy next to you just gets blown up, what are you going to say? What F-word? Oh, fudge. No. So now the ABC stations are really concerned. Are we going to get fined if we air this? And ABC wanted to know up front, please tell us, FCC. And the FCC would not. 111 stations refused to air Saving Private Ryan, thinking it was just too dangerous. The FCC then decided uh, it was okay. And the Supreme Court actually backed the FCC on that. But then we had PBS, and we had a documentary about blues singers. And I think we can just take note that sometimes blues singers use blue language. And the FCC said, well, that's not okay. So how do you try to determine what the FCC is going to do? It gets pretty dicey. But finally, the Supreme Court weighs in, and by 2012, things are fairly settled. The Supreme Court said that the FCC was okay in changing from the fleeting expletives are okay to saying first blow. It's not okay. The court said that is not arbitrary. That is not capricious. But then the court looked at several cases including Bono and the effing brilliant statement and the Janet Jackson fiasco. And the court said there was not fair notice to broadcasters of what was indecent. So 
those folks were spared fines, but the court made clear that going forward, indeed, this first bloke theory could be applied. And now, broadcasters, you are on notice. There's another issue that I that I could recall back in uh, about 1968 when there was a presidential candidate named Barry Commoner who began his commercials with a, a phrase that many people, I think, would find profane, if not obscene. And I think it, you know, it came down that there are limits on, on what broadcasters can do to limit political speech. That's a, that's a rather complicated situation. It is, and it is called reasonable access. If you are a federal candidate, then you have reasonable access and broadcasters may not censor what you say. One of the big cases involving that concerned uh, an anti-abortion commercial that a candidate down in Georgia wanted to have aired right after the Super Bowl. And it was very graphic, very graphic. And so here's what the first court said. It said, well, you can time shift that because there is a provision in the law that you can air indecency in the safe harbor period from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So the first court that heard it said, oh, just shift it to the safe harbor hours. But the appellate court came back, no, that is not acceptable. That violates reasonable access. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Bob, because that's a gap, if you want, in indecency law. I suppose I suppose somewhere along the way, somebody has to draw a line between indecency and just plain poor taste. <laughs> Is there that that's kind of a fuzzy area. I, I listen to morning shock jocks and sometimes I don't think, well, they're not they're not exactly indecent and they're not they're not really profane and they're not uh, pornographic, but gee whiz, they just don't show any any taste. Do we ever get into that? Yes, I, I think we do. I think we're, we're right in the middle of that. And part of the problem is that the indecency definition does apply, you know, contemporary standards. And I'll just ask you, does it seem to you that our society is getting coarser when it comes to the political discussions, uh, political commentaries, uh, Twitter when it comes to movies, they're sexier, if I can put it that way. When it comes to music, I started off as a music major, oboe, but the contemporary cultural pops, oh my, I must admit that I find it rather shocking. I am conservative in my music taste. Uh, and my movie taste. But I am also, I think, in ways more concerned about violence than so-called obscenity, but yet violence is not regulated. How do you think, or have you seen any evidence of the Me Too movement impacting the way that sexual content is now being examined by the courts. Is the lens changing on that? Or do you think that 
it'll just continue to vary from court to court based on how they define those community, the local community aspect. When it gets to the Me Too movement, are you talking about all the women who are coming forth now and expressing? Yes, that is not appealing to prurient interest. That is not appealing to sexy interest. It's not trying to be patently offensive. That is a whole different matter. Now we're talking about a public issue that has for too long been kept quiet, I think. So I'm, I'm a great proponent of First Amendment protection, which we do have, for women coming forward. And sometimes they do use graphic terminology because we are talking about an area that I consider to be maybe more violence than sex. But the First Amendment really does give broad protection. It, it very, very narrowly limits what we will say is unacceptable. I think what we're talking about with the Me Too movement is more the social attitude and women finally feeling that they have the power, they have the ability to come forth, to be a force for change that is too long in coming in this country. I've seen quite a few now women directors, women production company owners starting to tell stories that are shaped by leaders of the same gender telling those stories rather than of an opposite gender. So just curious if that content might end up being challenged. (laughs) I don't think so. One of the concerns that I remember us discussing in the media a few years ago concerns profanity or or maybe in pornography, perhaps, in a reporter who's covering an event, a rally of some kind, and a, a crowd begins to shout or yell profane or indecent language in the background while he's trying to report this. And I remember at one time we were very concerned that the reporter or the news organization could be punished because this kind of language gets on the air or these kind or somebody does something in the background. Uh, that that is that is on the air, especially if it's a live event. Is there a protection for legitimate news coverage when somebody starts misbehaving in a lewd way in the background? Well, now, and I'm trying to kind of speak for the FCC, but I would think that if it were a situation where indeed the broadcaster could eliminate that, that would be one thing. It would be dicier. But if it's live coverage. I think that the FCC is understanding of that. And by the way, the FCC, you know, you would have to have people complaining. Now, uh, again, back to the contemporary community standards, we are seeing a coarsening in political discourse and all. So I, I think things are changing. Now, I think when we talk about Children, there's one thing that I want to mention. The Supreme Court makes a big distinction between adults and children. And the court rejected the notion that, you know, if you have your own private stash of obscenity, you know, it might be poisoning your mind. No, the the court doesn't want to protect 
adults, but it does want to protect children. So we've got a standard called variable obscenity. So what might be okay for adults might not be okay for children. And there's another great big distinction, and that's if you have your own stash of pornographic material, that is okay. You could possess that as long as it involves adults. But the court has come down very hard on mere possession of kitty porn. And I think that has been a good development. In 1990, the Supreme Court said, yes, the mere possession of kitty porn is a violation. We got federal law against that. We've got, you know, state statutes against that. And we're not trying to protect the adults. We're trying to protect the children from being used. And so mere possession, it goes so far as we had a case involving a reporter. His name's Larry Matthews. He was an award-winning reporter, and he liked to do what he called immersion journalism. So, for example, when he wanted to cover the homeless people, he became homeless for a while. But then he turned his attention, he says, to this possession of kitty porn as a problem. So he immersed himself in that community. And what he did not realize was that he was giving kitty porn to an FBI agent. Okay, he's busted. And he wanted to say, I need First Amendment protection to do my reporting in this area. And he lost. Here's the black letter law. Reporters have no more right to violate valid criminal laws than anybody else. So, yes, Larry was convicted. There's a great deal of concern now about Facebook and other related situations such as that and what's proper on Facebook, what is not, what's clean on Facebook, what is dirty. Uh, is, is this a, a developing situation that we need to watch and see how this all pans out eventually? Oh, absolutely. The, the Internet has caused lots of problems. I'll mention another problem that the Internet has certainly made worse, and that's virtual pornography. And Congress got really concerned about virtual pornography and wanted to outlaw it. Orrin Hatch was talking about how it could whet pedophiles' appetites. And two, it was getting so good, perhaps, that prosecutors were going to have a hard time trying to prosecute crimes. But the Supreme Court looked at the legislation and said, no, um, well, there, there is one exception, morphing. If you take a real picture of a real kid and morph it to make it look as if the kid is engaging in some sort of sexual activity, that can be forbidden because then you have a real victim. But if you're talking about the virtual pornography, no, no real victim. The Supreme Court is really I think, saying that we need for parents to police this. We need to use screening software, and we can, we can take care of this. I will admit that I did research 
on what kind of things were available over the internet. I was not up to speed on that. So I just started in doing research. And quite frankly, I was shocked what is out there. For example, the pro-anorexia websites, you know, trying to encourage young girls uh, to engage in behaviors that could lead to their deaths. Just ridiculous. Some of the fetish websites, oh my, once you've seen these images, you cannot unsee them. And it reminds me of a country western song lyric, wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. But you get into the problem of where do you draw the lines? For instance, you can go online, an anarchist cookbook out there for bomb-making recipes. And I did research into that, you know, just bombs going off all over you, kids hurt and all. I'm uh, somewhat concerned that if anybody had been looking at what I had been researching at that time, they would have said in Columbia, Missouri, there's there's really one <laughs> wicked old pervert. But that made me know that I did not want my grandkids on the internet without supervision. We have fairly strong laws in a lot of areas, but you know, we can't water the internet down to a children's level because adults have the right to see this material. It's the same thing, though, when it comes to other forms of communications, books. When John Lennon died, his killer was clutching a copy of Catcher in the Rye. When Ronald Reagan, we know now, almost lost his life, John Hinckley had seen Taxi Driver, and he wanted to impress Jodie Foster. If you start censoring, you know, where do you end? That's the problem. Uh, great religious works have led to violence. So it's kind of the slippery slope, and I think that this is just one of the hardest areas of the law. I think when Supreme Court said, you know, we've been more divided over this area than any other, I don't think the Supreme Court would say that it's easy now. The Supreme Court, by the way, was hoping that it would just get the obscenity monkey off its back in 1973 when it set forth these the Miller standards. The Supreme Court at that time was spending about 5% of its time on obscenity cases. And my understanding is it wasn't just the clerks who were seeing those movies or reading those books. And the Supreme Court justices just wanted to get out of the obscenity business and thought, you know, if we make the standards clear enough, then the states can take care of it. But the very next year, 1974, Mike Nichols' carnal knowledge. It's really rather tame, but oh my, that one was in court. You know, it's just difficult. Now, contemporary community standards. As long as we do have disagreements, 
you know, it's it's going to stay a very complex area of the law. What might fly in Columbia, Missouri, or in Kansas City or St. Louis might not fly in rural Missouri. So I've got a question for you. Is it good that we do have these varying standards? I think varying standards is one reason we have a court system. You have a collision of a collision of intellectual issues. You have a collision of ethical, religious issues. And somebody has to decide either who's right or what the middle ground is or whether there's really an issue here at all. And that's why we have a court system to make these decisions. And that's uh, obviously we're always going to have things like this flow up to the court system, up to the Supreme Court. And they're never going to be probably able to separate to give us a final black letter law definition of obscenity or any of the other things they're trying to deal with. And uh, in this case, I think probably culture will define things in many ways because uh, culture shifts, culture changes, and courts have a tendency to follow culture. Yes. I was going to make the point earlier that I'm sure that some of the music that I listened to and enjoyed surprised and shocked my parents. And I know that some of the music my nieces and nephews listen to now surprises and shocks me. So the the culture change, I think, is is really on par, Bob. And it's fascinating to see how the court and the history that you've provided, Professor Davidson, how they've continued to adapt over the years to these changes in culture and technology. Yes. I did want to circle back the slippery slope that you were discussing. Yes. Can you kind of put it in a nutshell of how censorship relates to our First Amendment rights and what can be lost and or gained by shifting in one direction versus the other? Censorship of obscenity is one of those rare exceptions to the First Amendment freedom of speech. In 1931, the court decided that obscenity could be one of those exceptions. And the court then down through the years has said it can be so because it has no redeeming social value. So we say we have to weigh, you know, the benefits versus the harm of different kinds of speech. And when it comes to obscenity, the benefits simply aren't there. And so we can say, no, you cannot engage in this kind of obscene communication, which, of course, just brings us to the question of what is obscenity. But the Supreme Court also did say that the chief guarantee of freedom of expression is the prevention of censorship, the prevention of this prior restraint on speech. So obscenity remains an exception where the Supreme Court says, you know, we're at the heart of what the First Amendment is trying to eliminate, and that's censorship. But there are some exceptions. You national security, obscenity, protecting a fair trial, where we'll say, okay, the risk just outweigh any benefits. Now, if the Supreme Court in 1931 had just gone along with William Blackstone 
and his commentaries on the laws of Great Britain, we wouldn't have this problem. We would have no censorship. But if there were damages, then the one who was doing the naughty stuff would get to pick up the damages. Kind of shifting gears with that, the British model that you outlined and talking about, we've been talking about government and government's role when it comes to censorship. We actually had a past episode where we talked about social media and the ability of private companies to limit or terminate accounts or limit the content that you share, but that you don't really have any protection against that type of censorship. Can you explain a little bit about, go into a bit more detail about that difference and why a private entity such as Twitter or Facebook, you know, that's privately owned, or even if it's a publicly traded entity, it's not a governmental entity. Why do they have that ability to control that? Because it seems counterintuitive to our First Amendment rights. Let's talk about 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. Okay, violation of your First Amendment rights. It has to be under color of law. And these private entities don't fall under color of law. They can censor, if you want to use the term broadly. Let's take Twitter. Twitter can shut off accounts. But let's turn now to the question of public officials who are using Twitter to do public business. And we had a state representative who got caught up in trying to shut down some accounts. I think we had a university president who, you know, there was some uh, problem there. And we had a president of the United States shutting people out of Twitter. Now, when you are a public official doing public business on an entity such as Twitter and you want to then exclude some people, you want to censor them, the courts have a problem with that. But if you are a private business and you do want to censor, you don't violate the First Amendment. It's just uh, like if you are a public school, then you do have to recognize First Amendment rights of students. There are some limits here, and we could spend an hour on school law, which I absolutely love. If you are a private school, then clearly you can restrict what the students are doing. You can restrict the kind of t-shirts that they're wearing to school. You can restrict so much more than if it's a public institution. If it's a public institution, you have Again, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, that it protects the students against the principals, the superintendents, the school boards that are acting under color of law. So, you know, there are dividing lines that I think probably make quite a bit of sense. And if you don't like the way the private business is doing business, you don't like its censorship, you don't do business with them. On the other hand, do we need to protect the internet companies and other you know, social media companies if they are trying to protect 
children and, you know, users from what they think is the worst of the worst. I have seen, you know, internet sites that, as I said before, I would like to unsee. I can't. And giving private entities the ability to say, no, this is off limits. This doesn't meet our standards. Maybe that is a great protection. Is there an issue of arbitrariness that enters into considerations such as this? Is if somebody wants to maintain that an action is arbitrary, will they have any grounds to file an action against uh, an internet site that blocks them or something? If it's a private group, they can be arbitrary. And then the punishment would come if people don't want to do business with them. But again, private businesses can control what they do. There's one area that I will mention. It falls under the Communications Decency Act. If you are an internet provider or if you're a news station, say, and you want to let people comment, you will not be held liable for the material that those folks are posting. You won't even be held liable if you are engaging in screening. So, We have protection of internet services that do want to screen. And that started in New York, where you had a situation where if you didn't screen at all, then you wouldn't be liable. But if you started screening, then you would be considered a publisher. And for example, if there were libelous content on your system, you know, comments that were libelous, you would be liable for that. The court system looked at that and said, wait a minute, if you're trying to be a good citizen, then you're going to be slapped down. If you say just let any kind of sewage flow, then you're okay. No, we don't like that. So Congress did give protection under the Communications Decency Act for screening. Now, of course, that's an issue that's come up. So that's one thing about the law that I like and dislike. It can be changed. So, you know, it is a fluid situation. Going back to the very start of our show, we were talking about government government censorship. Uh, what what are the penalties if, uh, if government censors a document, and I figure out what, what the material that they have redacted, if you will, says, and I report the redacted material? Is there a penalty for me for uh, reporting that? It would depend on what the redacted material is. If that material violates national security, that can be a big problem. If the redacted material causes an invasion of privacy of somebody, again, that can be a big problem. I'm thinking this is not nearly that that serious, but I'm thinking of, of the standards that we have where the media does not identify juvenile offenders, for example, and the courts are very careful about protecting the identities of juvenile offenders. But there are other ways for us to find out the names of the juvenile offender. And reporting the name of a juvenile offender is not something we can be prosecuted for. It's just something that people are going to look at us and say, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. That's correct. But that's an, that's an example of where government withholds information. Right. But I can't be prosecuted if I divulge it. Right back to the the principles of protecting national security 
or in, in some cases, there could be privacy issues where people would be endangered, that kind of thing. But there is case law that protects the reporters if they have found information that the court wants to block. But information often that, well, let's talk about it. Uh, it is so important for the public to know. And I thought it was interesting in 1931 when the Supreme Court was saying, yes, we will allow prosecutions for obscenity or for violations of national security. The Supreme Court looked at the situation. Well, what had happened? It was depression time, prohibition time. So a guy by the name of Jay Neer and his partner up in Minneapolis thought this would be a good time to start a newspaper. They did. But after the very first issue, Jay Neer's partner was shot, not killed. But Neer started writing about how corrupt his area was, how the police were in cahoots with gangsters and all, and how the prosecuting attorney knew about it and wasn't doing anything about it. So the prosecuting attorney got mad and decided to use a Minnesota statute, which said that you could then eliminate newspapers as a nuisance if they were engaged in, uh, you know, defamatory material. The Supreme Court looked at that and said, basically, newspapers sick them. We've got a problem in our big cities. And that shows that we have a need for a vigilant and courageous press. When you have reporters that are trying to expose corruption and all, and you have public officials who are trying to sweep it under the rug, the Supreme Court is very clear. Yeah. Go press. We've talked a lot today about the FCC or the Federal Communications Commission. Who are they accountable to, if anyone? And, you know, because it sounds like their decision-making or lack of decision-making leads to the courts ending up with a lot of these questions. Yes, yes. It is political, in part, because you have five members on the FCC, two from the Republicans, two from the Democrats, and then the party that is in power, the president, gets to choose who will be the fifth person. So politics, I think you can say, does influence the makeup of the FCC, and that certainly might tilt attitudes one way or another. Congress gives the FCC its powers, and right now, the power to fine, for example, for indecency, oh my, uh, you can get almost $420,000 a pop. Now, there is a cap on that, but you know we're talking about big bucks fines. And the FCC really does have a lot of influence, not only because it can fine, but it can withhold licenses. And it's not just uh, indecency. For instance, hoaxes. A St. Louis station decided during the Gulf War that it would be fun to just uh, use the emergency broadcast system tone and say that we were under a nuclear attack. Ha, ha, ha. The FCC was not amused and did 
fine. Uh, and then we have other areas where, for instance, there are limits on the amount of commercials that can be broadcast during programming that targets children. I mean, there's, there are so many areas where the FCC is, I think, trying to make broadcast experience better. But, of course, there will be controversy uh, as long as we have people trying to decide what does constitute something that's so indecent that we should withhold it from the public. There's one important point that needs to be made, too, and that is the FCC only controls over-the-air broadcasters. Cable networks, streamers, and people like that are not under the FCC control. Some of the very partisan cable channels that we see are, are not being controlled by the FCC, and there's, no, there's really no industry regulation, internal industry regulation either. So those are people outside control of government when it comes to any kind of censorship or, or regulation. Yes, and that is an important point. Cable TV currently not under indecency regulations. And I mentioned before, twice Congress tried to extend indecency rules to the Internet. And twice the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, Congress, you may not do that. The First Amendment prohibits it. So the First Amendment prohibition, you know, carrying forward it's a protection if you want from Congress, if Congress wants to go arguably too far, then the Supreme Court is the safety valve to say no, the Constitution prevails. Which is one of the basic philosophies behind the whole uh, Bill of Rights, protecting the people from government. Yes. Well, this has been fascinating, Sandy, and uh, we, we're, we're grateful to have had you on the show with us. Thank you. We want to thank our listeners for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal 2, which is a special production of the Missouri Bar. We've explored numerous facets to this topic with Professor Sandra Davidson today, and we really appreciate you taking the time to share both the history and the ongoing challenges of this kind of tug and pull relationship between our First Amendment rights and censorship and efforts to protect both children and those adults who can't protect themselves. So thank you, Professor. Oh, and thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. I've really enjoyed it. The issue of, of communications law is always a matter of, some, of, of being in flex, and it will change through the years. And we might, uh, Sandy, we might have you back. I would love that, especially if you want to talk about school law. Fantastic. Fantastic indeed. Before we go, this program series is focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. Professor Davidson did an outstanding job addressing the decisions of the Supreme Court in a number of cases. In the next few minutes, let us look at the arguments presented by members of the court who did not agree with the precedents established in these landmark decisions. We heard about the decision in the 1957 case of Roth versus United States, in which the court, in a decision written by William Brennan, identified a new test to determine whether speech constituted obscenity that would be unprotected by the First Amendment. Chief Justice Earl Warren, in a concurring opinion in Roth, distanced himself from the test created by the court. Warren wrote, The history of the application of laws designed to suppress the obscene 
demonstrates convincingly that the power of government can be invoked under them against great art or literature, scientific treatises, or works exciting social controversy. Mistakes of the past prove that there is a strong countervailing interest to be considered in the freedoms guaranteed by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. This concurrence was consistent with a statement Warren once made about censorship. The censor's sword pierces deeply into the heart of free expression. However, the most consistent and vocal opponent of censorship was Justice William O. Douglas. He was joined by Justice Hugo Black in his Roth dissent. Noting the corrosive effect of community censorship upon the First Amendment, Douglas wrote, Any test that turns on what is offensive to the community standards is too loose, too capricious, too destructive of freedom of expression to be squared with the First Amendment. Under that test, juries can censor, suppress, and punish what they don't like, provided the matter relates to sexual impurity or has a tendency to excite lustful thoughts. This is community censorship in one of its worst forms. It creates a regime where, in the battle between the literati and the Philistines, the Philistines are certain to win. If experience in this field teaches us anything, it is that censorship of obscenity has almost always been both irrational and indiscriminate. The test adopted here accentuates that trend. Douglas went on to question the idea that sexually explicit materials were never intended to be protected by the First Amendment, writing, There is no special historical evidence that literature dealing with sex was intended to be treated in a special manner by those who drafted the First Amendment. In fact, the first reported court decision in this country involving obscene literature was in 1821. This was 30 years after the ratification of the First Amendment. Douglas concluded by questioning the placement of personal preferences of powerful people above what is expressly guaranteed in the Constitution. Douglas wrote, I reject, too, the implication that problems of freedom of speech and of press are to be resolved by weighing against the values of free expression the judgment of the court that a particular form of that expression has no redeeming social importance. The First Amendment, its prohibition in terms absolute, was designed to preclude courts as well as legislatures from weighing the value of speech. The First Amendment puts free speech in the preferred position. We also heard that in 1973, in the case of Miller versus California, the Supreme Court, by the barest of majorities, created a new three-pronged test for obscenity. Justice Douglas was one of the four dissenters in this case, writing that the quest to define obscenity as a category of unprotected speech is one that will inevitably fail. Douglas stated, 
Today, the court retreats from the earlier formulations of the constitutional test and undertakes to make new definitions. This effort, like the earlier ones, is earnest and well-intentioned. The difficulty is that we do not deal with constitutional terms since obscenity is not mentioned in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. So there are no constitutional guidelines for deciding what is and what is not obscene. The court is at large because we deal with tastes and standards of literature. What shocks me may be sustenance for my neighbor. What causes one person to boil up in rage over one pamphlet or movie may reflect only his neurosis, not shared by others. Justice Douglas then quoted his colleague, Justice John Harlan, who observed, The upshot of all this divergence in viewpoint is that anyone who undertakes to examine the court's decisions since Roth, which have held particular material obscene or not obscene, would find himself in utter bewilderment. Ironically, the author of the Roth decision, William Brennan, wrote a dissent in the companion case to Miller, Paris Adult Theater versus Slayton, that was joined by Justice Thurgood Marshall and Justice Potter Stewart. Stewart is the jurist who once wrote that while he could not define obscenity, he knew it when he saw it. While his colleague Stewart knew obscenity when he saw it, Brennan expressed frustration at not being able to define it. Brennan wrote, As a result of our failure to define standards with predictable application to any given piece of material, there is no probability of regularity in obscenity decisions by state and lower federal courts. That is not to say that these courts have performed badly in this area or paid insufficient attention to the principles we have established. The problem is, rather, that one cannot say with certainty that material is obscene until at least five members of this court applying inevitably obscure standards have pronounced it so. The number of obscenity cases on our docket gives ample testimony to the burden that has been placed upon this court. Given this fact, Justice Brennan concluded, our experience since Roth requires us not only to abandon the effort to pick out obscene materials on a case-by-case -case basis, but also to reconsider a fundamental postulate of Roth, that there exists a definable class of sexually oriented expression that may be totally suppressed by the federal and state governments. Assuming that such a class of expression does in fact exist, I am forced to conclude that the concept of obscenity cannot be defined with the sufficient specificity and clarity to provide fair notice to persons who create and distribute sexually oriented materials, to prevent substantial erosion of protected speech as a byproduct of the attempt to suppress unprotected speech, and to avoid very costly institutional harms. Clearly, William Brennan's perspective had shifted in the decade and a half since he authored the Roth decision. 
There's an old adage that goes, today's dissent is tomorrow's majority opinion. Even though Miller versus California has never been officially overturned, the court has come to adopt a position on obscenity that is much closer to that articulated by Justices Douglas and Brennan than Chief Justice Berger's three-pronged approach. Once again, in matters of constitutional law, we ignore dissenting opinions at our own peril. If you want to learn more about the law and censorship, or if you have other legal questions, go to MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your family, your life, and your finances. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.